Fantastic. It's good to have you all here this morning. I hope that you're doing well. A um, bit of a shorter week of the public holiday. Um, a long weekend next weekend, which is quite exciting. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation 2. We're continuing our series on uh, the seven churches of Revelation. So far, we've looked at Ephesus and we've looked at Smyrna. And just some context. Um, this book was written by John when he was exiled to the island of Patmos. Um, I probably said that wrong. Nicholas isn't here, so I don't have the Greeks to, to correct me. Um, but yeah, he had been exiled, um, believed to have been exiled for speaking against the worship of the Roman Empire. Um, and it's believed that at this point he had also been boiled to almost the point of death. And so he was exiled in pain, probably bandaged, skin falling off, just to paint a pretty gruesome picture. Um, and this is when he got this revelation uh, from Jesus to the churches and of, of that time. And we said this before, but there's a thing as we go through the seven churches, a lot of um, theologians and scholars believe that this church, this letter represents seven churches that was both relevant in that time, so these churches existed in the time that John wrote these letters, but then they also believe that these churches represent seven ages of the church as, as we move through the last 2,000 years, but there's also a lot of evidence to prove that, and I mean, we, as we go through this, we see it, that these letters are incredibly relevant to the church today, and at any time, several of these letters might be relevant to one church or different churches at the same time. And so we've looked at Ephesus, which was the church that had lost its first love. Um, we looked at the church of Smyrna, who was persecuted for their faithfulness. And today we're looking at the church of Pergamum. Um, this is a church that had allowed compromise to creep into their teaching and into their thinking. And I know that Daniel did share a bit of this while I was away, but I'd just like to build on top of that today as well. And so it's important as we go through this, just as Michael Eaton says, that Revelation never suggests that the seven churches give an outline for church history or foretelling. That this is reading into text that, some, that is something that isn't there. Sorry, my English is escaping me. Um, the seven churches have the equivalents among the congregation of every age, but all seven have a relevance revel, re, wow, to the church today. And so as we read these... I want you to think to yourself and ask yourself these four questions is, what is Jesus saying? What can I get out of this? What is true of my life? The second question. The third question is, what do I need to change or address in my life today? And what can I do to help and encourage others around me? I've said this and I'll probably say it every week, is that when we read the, the word and when we seek out revelation and when we spend time with the Father, what we get is not for us to hoard for ourselves, but it's to build and encourage those around us as well. So it's very important that we share what God is speaking to us about. All right, let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you that we can come together this morning. We can look at your word, Father, that we can come from a place of celebration and worship and we can spend time looking at what you have told us. And Father, I pray that that which is relevant for us today, would that stick, would that find roots in fertile soil of our hearts, and would it bear much fruit in us. We pray that you'd be honored and glorified through the reading and the speaking through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Revelation 2, verse 12 to 17. This is a letter to the church in Pergamum. 
And it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give... Sorry, to the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so just to give you some context, Pergamum is a city that is now found in modern-day Turkey. It's still the city itself. You can go visit the ruins that are, that are there. And it was one of the most important cities under the Roman Empire. It was the center point of influence within the country and in the region. It was an educated city. Um, it housed one of the largest libraries, a uh, library of books at that time. I think something like 200,000 books. Remember, these were all handwritten books. These were not typed out and neatly bound. These were all handwritten. And interesting enough, if you are a language buffin, the word parchment actually comes from the name Pergamon based on the fact that they had this large library of books. Um, They were also very influential in spirituality. They housed the largest statue of Zeus, Zeus, uh, the Greek god. Uh, They had one of the largest altars that was dedicated to him. They were also very big in promoting emperor worship. And as I mentioned the last time, a few years, two weeks ago, is that Caesar at that point had declared that at every place of worship, the emperor or Caesar had to be pronounced as the true God first and then worship of the gods in the temple and for the Christians could continue. Um, There was also, it was also a place known for healing and hospitals, um, but this was not done as traditional hospitals as we would know. This was done through temples that were dedicated to one of the gods, Asclepius. I don't know if pronouncing that right at all. But basically, they had a whole bunch of non-venomous snakes that were housed in these temples. And people would go there for a week or two and would just stay there and let the snakes crawl all over them, believing that as the snakes did that, they would be healed. So it was a very dark place. I mean, if if you've read your Bible, you know that Satan is often referred to as a serpent. Um, And that, I mean, that gives you a bit of an indication of just... When Jesus says that, I know where you dwell, in, uh, where Satan's throne is. I mean, that's, it's pretty, it's, it was a dark place, spiritually dark. Um, and so this was what happened here. And so we had this church that was in the city that was just oppressed by spiritual darkness. It was also a city that had very strong ties to Balaam and to Nicolaitan um, influences, both of which were mentioned in the text, and I'll explain that a bit more a bit later. This is a city that was open to so much evil spirituality that also made its way into the church. And so it wasn't just that there was a spiritually dark place. A lot of the teachings of the religions around 
ended up coming into the church as well. And this is where Jesus says, there's a letter, the criticism towards you is that you have allowed these teachings into, your, into the congregation. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, there are generally, as we read through the seven churches, there are seven points that come up through the text. The first is that there's a command that the letter should be written. And so we see that and it says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. There's a description of Jesus that is, comes straight after that. And what I've found as I've read through this, and I encourage you to do the same, is that when Jesus introduces himself in each letter, it is so relevant to the context of that city. We saw in Ephesus where it says that you've lost your first love, and he says, I am the first and the last. In Smyrna, he says the same thing, I died and I came to life. Smyrna was known as a city of spiritual death. To this church, he says, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. And so this is a description of Jesus that we also find in Revelation 1 verse 6, where it says, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And so what we see is Jesus introduces himself to a city that is known for its false teaching, for its idol worship, for its pagan religions. Jesus is bringing in truth a two-edged sword. If you read further on in Revelation, you see Jesus comes back riding a white horse with his name on his thigh with a double-edged sword in his hand, declaring the truth. And so the truth is the word. So this word cuts through the lies of the enemy and brings truth of the gospel to lives. So when it comes to compromise, which the scripture is about this morning, Jesus always comes with the two-edged sword of truth cutting away things that would try and pull us away from him and try and pollute the message of the gospel of Jesus. And so it's so important for us to hold fast to the word. When we look at Ephesians, where it talks about the arm of God, the sword of the spirit. It is so important that we, you have the sword of the spirit with us to guide us and to lead us and to penetrate into the darkness and to bring truth into everything that we say and do and read and allow into our lives. Fortunately, Jesus doesn't come in and just criticize. Jesus comes in and he shows love. Jesus comes in and he shows that he understands and he knows us. And he goes, we've seen this with Ephesus and we saw this with Smyrna. And he starts off with his commendation to this church. And he says, I know where you dwell. He's not just saying, well, you live in a city that's full of this, but you have done this. He says, no, I know where you dwell. It is Satan's throne. That's pretty strong language. But Jesus affirms the church and he reminds them in the same way he did with the other churches that he sees them. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And he commends them. He says, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So Jesus sees them in the midst of a city that is full of idol worship and paganism. Jesus sees them. He says, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. He sees them that in the midst of all the spiritual oppression, they hold fast to his name and they do not deny the faith. And this is so relevant for us today. We live in a city where what we believe is not accepted. Yes, it's allowed, but it's not accepted. We can't go and speak to every single person that we want to about the name of Jesus. There's oppression that we face. We live in a city that does not accept Jesus in the way that we have him as Lord and Savior. 
And so Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. We saw in Smyrna that the encouragement was to remain faithful in trials and tribulations, even unto death. But what we see in Pergamum is that even in the face of, in the midst of death, where Antipas was murdered and killed and martyred, this church remained faithful. They had seen what the consequence of standing up for the faith looked like. Just to, put it, uh, to explain, Antipas is believed to have been the leader of the church in Pergamum at that time. And he had actually been burnt alive in a brazen, bull-shaped altar for casting out demons that were worshipped by the local community. And so he had been martyred for standing up for his faith and doing what God had called him to do. And in the midst of that, they stayed faithful to their faith. They saw the consequence. They saw what standing up and believing in God meant, and yet they still continued to believe. And so the tone here is one of sympathy. It's not saying, well, I know where you live, but do better. God say, no, I know where you live, that this is a tough place. This is a place where the language that's used is this is where Satan dwells, the footstool, his throne. And while, God, while Jesus has criticisms towards the church, he has not abandoned them. He has not led them to despair. He has not left them in ruin. He has not left them to their own devices. No, instead, he's sympathetic towards them. And he acknowledges the tough predicament that they're in, that you are in a city that does not accept you, that fights against you. And he acknowledges their faith in the midst of the spiritually depraved city. And even in the face of death, they stayed faithful to the name of Jesus and to the gospel of Jesus. And my encouragement to you this morning is that God sees you. And I'll say this every time, God knows where you live. God knows the things you're going through. God knows the financial difficulties. He knows the predicaments spiritually. He knows the oppression. He knows the persecution. He knows the slander that has come. He knows, and he's sympathetic towards that. And my encouragement is just hold fast to the name of Jesus. Hold fast. Do not deny the faith. Hold fast to him. And then Jesus comes in after this, and he says, but I have a few things against you. And this is in Revelation 2, verse 14 to 15, and it says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And I think it's very important for us to notice that he wasn't criticizing the whole church. It wasn't the whole church that had sw- strayed from the teachings of Jesus. It says, you have some there who hold to this. You have some there who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And there's a dual warning within this. The first one is that you have those who have not strayed from the teachings, but accept other people that have strayed from the teachings of Jesus. And so it is up to all of us to look out for one another, to build, to encourage, and to walk alongside one another in accountability and discipleship. In love and in relationship, we can keep each other on track. And this is why it is so important that we meet with one another, that we talk to one another, that we come together on a Friday morning in a corporate fellowship setting. Because isolation is an invitation for compromise. Um, We used to have a guy, Mike Altringham, who used to 
be one of the apostolic oversights in this church. Unfortunately, he's passed away. And he always used to say that isolation and boredom, being alone, being lonely, and being tired is a recipe for disaster. Because if you're bored, sorry, not alone, t- angry. If you're bored, angry, lonely, and tired, and in isolation, it is the playground of the enemy. Because if you're in a hotel room by yourself and you go through the situations, it's easy for the enemy to come and attack in different ways. And so it is so important that we do not allow that isolation to creep in, that we do not isolate ourselves in times of frustration and persecution, but that we walk together. The Christian journey was never a journey of isolation. It's a journey of community and fellowship. It is so important. The second thing is that we need to be on guard against compromise and misguided teachings and revelation. And this is very important in a day and age of podcasts and YouTube and access to every single person that has a message that they want to share, is that it's easy to be distracted with messages that sound so good but aren't actually biblical. There's a lot of motivational speakers with a Christian message, but there's not a lot of Christian messages that are cut to the truth. And so it's so important that when we watch these videos, when we listen to these podcasts, that we say, is this something that points me to Jesus? Is this pointing to the good news message of the gospel? Is this pointing to what Jesus has done for us? Is this something that explains that Jesus died for our sins? That through his death and his resurrection, we now have a way to relationship with the Father? Or is this just a five-point sermon on how you can be a better you? Because it's great to give motivational messages, but if they're not pointing you to Jesus, what are we doing? It is so important that every message that we listen to, that we're allowed to take root in our hearts, points us to Jesus. That points to the gospel of what Jesus has done for us. It points to his death and resurrection, our salvation through him and him alone. You see, the church in Pergamum were holding fast to Christ's message, but they were tolerating people within the church who held fast to the messages of Balaam and to the Nicolaitans. There was a compromise in tolerating this watered-down message that was coming into the church. Just to put in context, Balaam, you can find the story in Numbers 22 to 24. Um, He was a money-loving prophet, who persuaded Balak, who was the king of the Moabites at that time, and to try and encourage him to religious harmony with Israel. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know that the Moabites were one of the groups of people that the Israelis were not allowed to mix with. And so what Balaam did is he encouraged the king of Moab to get all the beautiful women of the city together to go and seduce the Israeli men and to get them and to lead them into licentiousness and into religious festivals, eating food that had been sacrificed to other idols, but also into sexual immorality, which were some of the big things that the law spoke about at that time. And so he distracted them with charm and beauty and seduced them into a life that compromised what they believed. You see, Balaam taught Israel to sin by eating forbidden foods and by practicing sexual immorality. And I think so often today, and I think even more so in the church, as time advances and society's voice gets louder, there's going to be a stronger call to sexual immorality, to accepting and compromising these things that are happening in the world today. 
Um, see, it's the tactics of the devil to use the guise of love and acceptance and tolerance to bring in a watered-down belief system into the church. See, Satan, Satan's tactics have not changed. It's very much the same. He still uses the charm of the world to try and distract us from, into areas of, of compromise. If he can distract us by saying, well, if you don't love this person, or if you don't accept this person, or if you don't accept someone's identity, that you don't love them, that you hate them, and distracts us from the fact that we should just be showing kindness and love, he wins. See, the Nicolaitans, on the other hand, practiced a religion that looked like Christianity, but taught a message of self-indulgence through a perverted grace message, basically using grace as their license to sin and do whatever they want. I think we still see that very much alive and well in the church today. Um, I remember I was a student once. I was actually telling someone I was a student two decades ago. I felt very old using the terminology. Um, but when I was a student, I had lots of friends at church, and I'd done this myself, go out and party on a Saturday night, drag myself into church on a Sunday morning, but feel good because I came to church using grace as a license to do whatever I wanted the night before. But coming on a Friday morning, be like, ah, oh, but there's grace. It'll be okay. But that's, that's not. There's a responsibility with grace. Grace was not a license to sin. Grace is a license to take responsibility for our walk with God. It's to call us to a higher standard of living that Jesus has set for us. And so this church, the Nicolaitans, would come in and say, well, you can do whatever you want. Self-indulgence. Eat all the food. Sleep around. Get drunk. Take drugs. This grace. God will forgive you. It's okay. Just keep doing it. But there was never a call to a higher standard of living. And so the issue that Jesus had with the church was, one, that this message was coming into the church. But I think the greatest thing here was that there was a tolerance within the church for this message. And for those in the church, there was a tolerance for them to come in with a watered-down gospel and to partake in these things. So there was a compromise in faith and using grace as an excuse to do whatever they wanted. And when Jesus speaks of this double-edged sword, he is speaking to the church to speak truth. And to no longer entertain and to tolerate the teachings that would lead the church into compromise. We live in a world where um, tolerance is a big word that is thrown around. And I'm going to say something controversial. I think Jesus is very, very, very intolerant. I don't think that Jesus would tolerate a lot of the messages that come out today. Jesus was a perfect mixture of grace and love and truth. And I think it's so important as it's going to get more difficult for Christians to speak against the thing that the world is promoting, saying, oh, but tolerate this, tolerate, tolerate, tolerate. It's either we believe or we don't believe. It's either we are hot or we cold. There's no space for lukewarm within the Christian faith. And it's going to get more challenging. It's going to get more difficult. Um, we see it in other more progressive countries where people in leadership, in churches and congregations, are getting thrown into jail, are having their religious licenses taken away, are getting kicked out of the church for standing up for the gospel, for standing up for the truth of Jesus. And I think it's so important that we, one, read the Bible. Nikki spoke about it a few weeks ago, is that that is the voice and the word of the Lord. We have access to 24-7 that it is so important that we know what the truth is. What does the Bible say? What does Jesus say? 
it is so important that we also know what it means to love, what it means to accept, what it means to show kindness. The Bible is very clear and says that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Not us Bible bashing and saying, oh, you are a sinner, you condemned. No, we say love and kindness, showing grace and compassion and sympathy, just as it's been shown to us. In James, it says we show mercy because we have received it. And so how do we walk that line, showing mercy and grace and love to those that are hurt and broken and confused? We need to be bold to speak the, the truth of Jesus, not just out there, but in the church too. I think there's a lot of churches that are accepting of a watered-down message, of allowing compromise to misguide and bring confusion and misunderstanding to the truth of Jesus. And it's so important for us as we move into the next few years ahead that we know what the truth is, that Jesus came to save us, that Jesus came to bring liberty, that he came to bring freedom, that he came to bring a way to relationship with the Father. That we as Christians have been called to lay down our lives, to lay down our struggles, our victories, all these things for the sake of the gospel. And so this is very relevant to us today as well. In a world that is screaming a loud message of acceptance and tolerance, we as Christians need to stand up for the truth and show love and kindness and mercy. I think um, I shared a message a few months ago uh, about the foxes in the vineyard. Um, And when foxes get into the vineyard, they don't eat the fruit. They don't mess up the leaves of the vine. What they do is they actually attack the root system. And so they'll nibble on the roots and the lower ends of of the vine. And what it does is it doesn't destroy the fruit that's there. What it does is it causes a slow death. And so that's what compromise does. When we allow compromise into what we believe, it doesn't attack what we can see immediately. It attacks the root foundational levels of our faith. And so we might say, well, it's okay to do this, or it's okay to believe this. Those things come, and over time, the rot starts at the bottom at the foundation, and eventually it affects the fruit, it affects the leaves, it affects everything else about the vine, and that vine eventually dies. And so what we need to do as Christians is we have to pay close attention. What are the foxes that we have allowed into our lives? What are the things that we are watching? What are the things we are listening to? What are the conversations we are having that are coming to break down the foundational things that we believe in the truth of Jesus? Because sometimes the message that is preached, is, it sounds so good. I mean, God is a God of love. God is a God who is gentle and kind and accepting. While that's true, we also know that God is, as much as he's the lamb, he's the lion. And he wars against these things. The language here is he will war against them. He will fight. He will fight for his children. He'll fight for his bride. I know if I see my children doing something, we were on holiday um, after we spent time with Lloyd and Kat, and the sea where we were was very rough. Like, like I'm very confident in water. I've always have been. I'm a bit of a water baby. My kids, it's the first time they've been in the sea where there's actual waves. And then on top of that, it's the sea with waves and strong winds, and it's one wave after the other after the other, and a strong pullback tide and everything. And so Adam's very brave, and he's, he's trying to go deeper and deeper. I said, Adam, like, you've got to be careful. 
Like, I know you want to have fun. I know you want to splash around in the waves and jump, and this is new and exciting for you. But I have been there. I've been in this position where I was young, and we've been, got into trouble with deep water and waves and strong weather and all of that. And so I was just like, Adam, I want you to enjoy yourself, but also need you to be careful. I need you to be cautious. And so I would do whatever I can to make sure that my kids are safe. How much more so would the Father do that with us? How much more so when he sees us going down these roads, when he saw this church in Pergamum allowing compromised belief into the church, how much more will he fight for that? To say, actually, what you're doing is damaging. It's hurting you. I'm not going to allow Adam to go out into the sea and get dragged away by the waves or get beaten by them just because. I'm going to stand up and be like, actually, no, come back, come back. Come to a place of safety, a place where I know that you can touch the ground and that you can get back and away from the sea if you need to. How much more so would God do that for us? How much more so would he look out for us, not in a way to control us like puppets on a string, but for a way to protect us, to a way to keep us safe, in a way that shows his love for us. And that's what God is doing here with the church in Pergamum. He's saying, I love you too much to allow you to continue down this road. Yes, I have grace. Yes, I have mercy. Yes, there's forgiveness. But I also don't want you to hurt yourself. I don't want you to get into trouble. I want to protect you and love you and care for you. And with that, I want to show the world how much I love you and care for you and want to protect you. And this is where he comes in with this exhortation to repentance. In Revelation 2.16, he says, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against him with the sword of my mouth. <clears throat> this sounds like very strong language, but I think, honestly, like, if I knew my kids were in trouble and they needed help, I would fight. I would have no issue fighting for them. And God's the same. He's got no issue. He will fight for your life. He will fight for your soul. He will fight for your heart. See, Jesus calls the church to repent. He says, repent, repent of this. Repent of one, allowing a watered-down gospel into your life, but secondly, allowing and tolerating a gospel that other people are preaching that does not point me to Jesus. And so Jesus is intolerant against compromise. It's in his love for us that he wages war against sin. He did that by going to the cross for us by shedding his blood, by being broken for us so that we might find salvation through him and forgiveness for our sins, paying the ultimate price. See, Jesus in love, but also in power and authority, speaks truth that cuts to the heart and brings us to a place of repentance. It's the sword of his mouth, the truth. It's his word that teaches us what it means to be his children because he loves us. Not because he wants to dictate to us, but because he loves us. See, God is jealous for our devotion and our affection. I spoke about this when we looked at Ephesus. He says, you forgot on your first love. Not to reprimand, but to say, but I want your love. I want to spend time with you. I want to know you. I want you to know me. <clears throat> I know that I'm speaking to myself first year this morning that there are areas where sometimes we allow compromise in. It's like, I can watch the series. It's not so bad. I can watch five episodes in one night and be tired and angry the next day. I can listen to this podcast and I'll try to take the good with it, but sometimes it's just bad as well. 
conversations that we entertain, the things that we read. It's a battlefield of the mind that is going on over and over. The enemy does not play fair. He will wage war. He has come to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus will fight too. And he says, come, repent. If you need to stop watching that series, stop watching that series. If you need to stop reading those books, stop reading those books. If you need to stop having certain conversations, stop doing that. Fight. Fight against compromise. Fight against what you allow into your heart and your soul and your mind. That is so important. Fill yourself with the word of God. We used to read a song every day. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. It's so important. It's so simple. It sounds so easy. Just read your Bible every day. Pray every day. But we don't do that every day. (laughs) But we have to. We have to come back to the Word of God. We have to find ourselves at the feet of Jesus every day. It's only by His grace and His mercy that we will grow, that we will be able to overcome these things of compromise in our lives. We then see in Revelation 2, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so one is speaking to the general church, but I want to encourage you this morning. Like, I want you to go home today and read this or this week. Meditate on the scripture and say, God, what is it that you need me to hear? Because I can teach you now, but if you're only coming here once a week, you're going to be starving the whole week. You've got to find and say, Holy Spirit, what is it that I need to learn? What is it where I need to grow? What are the things that I need to address in my life? How have I allowed compromise into my life? And how am I helping other people who are lost and misguided? And then it comes to the promise. There's a promise that comes. It says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I think the beauty of every letter that is written is that there's a promise for every single believer. That it's not only for some of us, it's for every single one of us. And this promise is for every believer that heeds both the encouragement and the criticism and then overcomes through repentance. I think the beauty of all of this is that we are not expected to overcome by ourselves. And I spoke about this two, three weeks ago, is that we have the Holy Spirit who is our helper, our comforter, our advocate. We have been, Jesus didn't say, just overcome and leave us to our own devices. No, he says, overcome, but just someone to help you. And so we have the Spirit who leads us and guides us. We just need to yield to him. <clears throat> if you're anything like me, you would have been confused by the manner, the white stone, and the new name. Um, and so I'll explain that for you, because you asked so nicely. So the manner, this represents the supplies of God's grace and his spiritual sustenance. If you've read the story of the Israelites moving through the desert, you would have known that God gives, gave them manna to feed them every morning. Every morning there was fresh manna. Every morning there was new food. And if they tried to keep it for the next day, it would go moldy and disgusting, and they wouldn't be able to eat it. And so it's just a story of there is fresh grace every day. And the Lord's Prayer says, give us this daily bread every day, this manna that is given to us, a sustenance, spiritual sustenance from the Father, a fresh supply of His grace. The white stone is a bit, was quite interesting. So I didn't know this, but when the gladiators would fight in the Colosseum at that time, and if they were victorious and well-liked and all of this, they were given a white stone. 
And this white stone represented freedom and victory and would have freedom to move about the city. And so what God is saying here is, I will give you this white stone. This was in context with what something they would have understood at that time. It's like it's an approval from God. That white stone was an approval from Caesar to, for, towards a gladiator. And this was an approval from God that this person has fought. It is a symbol of freedom and of victory. And so what God is saying is for those who conquer, I will give a white stone. So when we conquer, God gives us this thing of freedom and victory, a symbol and a status of knowing that we have overcome. And then lastly, he says, and I will give you a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one that receives it. And I'm pretty sure that you've all heard the story of Abram, Sarah, and Jacob, who all had got given new names. And a new name was a status of a Christian through the Old Testament. Abram became Abraham, Sarah, Sarai became Sarah, Jacob became Israel. And these new names were given after a period of persistent faith and loyalty to God. Jacob had to wrestle for his new name. Abraham had to go through quite an intense trial and tri- battle and almost sacrificing his son and received a new name. Sarah believed and had faith and she was given a new name. And so when we persist in our faith, despite the spiritual climate around us, God gives us a new name, a new name that we will know. And so these, these things of the promise in this scripture is both for now, but also for eternity. And we sang it this morning as we walk from now into eternity. This is the thing of, as a Christian, we've, we live today, but with an eternity mindset. What we do today is going to affect our children and their children and their children, but also going to echo into eternity as we go to heaven and, be, and we are with God. <coughs> so in closing, the questions that I asked you at the beginning is, what is it that Jesus is saying, both to the church but also to you? What is it from the church program that you can take and apply to your life? What is true of your life, based on what we've read this morning? Is there anything that we need to change or address? And I want to take, encourage you, spend time with the Holy Spirit this week. The Holy Spirit, what is it that I need to address in my life? And then what can I do to help and encourage others in this as well? It's so important for us to safeguard against compromise in our faith. We need to stay in relationship with the Father. We need to read the word and allow that word and the truth of God to cut away at any areas of compromise that we've allowed in, anything that we've tolerated within our faith that does not point us to Jesus or lead us to a place of repentance. But then we also need to look out for one another. And I'm going to say it again, isolation was never, was never part of the design for Christianity. There's moments of going away to be with the Father, and we see that through the life of Jesus as well, but the walk of Christianity was never to be in isolation. It was always about community and fellowship. The Trinity modeled that. Jesus modeled that with his disciples. We see it throughout the, the Gospels. It was either two by two or in groups, or there's always a coming together. In Acts, it says they met from home to home, and they didn't neglect the fellowship of the saints. And so there's this thing of coming together. Accountability and discipleship is so important. In love and in relationship, we can walk with each other, help each other, 
and make sure that we're staying on track. And in everything that we point to Jesus first. It's not like if you do these five things, you can overcome. No, look to Jesus and you will overcome. If you follow these 10 steps and you'll live a better life, no, look to Jesus. Jesus, I said this to the church in the Philippines, is like Jesus never ever promised, promised to take us away from our problems, but he came to equip us to be able to go through them with him. And so I want to encourage you with that this morning is to dig into the word, spend time with the Father, and allow him to walk with you through the valley of of all the things that we go through. Can I pray? So, Father, I just want to thank you that we get to look at this letter that you've written to the church in Pergamum, Father. And, Father, I pray that as we go into this week ahead that you would take this message, Father God, and would it resonate in our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you reveal the things in our lives that we need to address? Holy Spirit, would you show us areas in our lives where we're doing well, Father? Father, I pray, Lord, in a, in a message that can come across as heavy, Father God, that you would bring joy, that you would bring freedom, that you would bring liberty for those who conquer, Father. We thank you for your promise of sustained grace, of sustained spiritual sustenance, Father, of victory and freedom, not in our own strength, but because you are with us. So, Father, I pray, would you be with us and would you guide us? As we heal to you, Holy Spirit, would you lead us in every way, Father? We bless you and give you all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to have you guys. Please join us for coffee and snacks.